Okay, Tazria Matora. Are you going to sing the song? Tazria. <laughs> uh, it's a bar mitzvah lament. It's like, why did I get Tazria? Yeah. Rabbi, but, are, we, are, we, are we like going along with what's going uh, we're, the re, the de, the re, we're, on, we're on the weekly cycle. We're on the cycle. Yeah, yeah. That's why we call the class Parshat HaShavua, which means the portion of the week. Okay. Um, so you'll find it on page 735. Let's say a uh, blessing and then uh, we'll dive in. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah Amen Hi Gail um, So for starters I was meeting with a lovely uh, woman who's, who loves studying Torah yesterday uh, from Kingston who was talking to me and she shared with me, do I know about this website? Have you heard of something called alpha, um, alephbeta.org? Alephbeta.org. Well, it's a rabbi, um, oh, what's his name? Um, uh, I forget his name. Um, who has put up a, these videos of each portion where he makes simple cartoons but then talks really serious Torah. I re- he lived, he's an Orthodox rabbi, he lives down in um, Woodmere, Long Island, and it is so good. So I had so much fun listening to his teachings about Tazri and Matorah, and I'm actually going to, so B'Shem uh, Omro, which means in the name of the person I was learning it from, because I can't remember his name. So uh, it might pop back in my head. <laughs> But take a look at, the, if you like serious Torah study, uh, take a look at alephbeta.org, A-L-E-P-H, A-L-E-P-H, Aleph, beta, B-E-T-A, dot O-R-G. Um, and then the comments are really interesting because he's made these 10-minute sort of Parsha, th- parsha talks with the graphics and the little... And day schools and, and Jewish high schools are using him all the time because it's a perfect way to teach the Parsha. And uh, so all the comments are, are from like 11th grade class. That these were our thoughts. And it's really nice. It was really nice. So, uh, and he's, I just was very impressed with his website. He says there's, there's knowledge and then there's understanding. And he's trying within his Orthodox community to give people deep understanding, and I, I, I'm going to write him a letter thanking him for his, uh, his, his work. So he's one of my new favorites. So he's doing some looking at these portions, and that's what I'm going to be bouncing off of. Foreman, Rabbi Foreman, F-O-H-R-M-A-N, that's his name. Uh, so Tazria and Metzora are two of the most opaque Torah portions not just to the modern reader, but even Maimonides would comment, I'm not sure why this is, and I'm not sure why that is. So, uh, but they're not as opaque as they used to be to me. Um, uh, because if you compare, if, using the technique of Torah study where you 
see where different words are used in the Torah and see the comparisons of different episodes and then try to line them up and say, what do these have in common? Because the same language is being used in each of these. Then some very interesting stuff comes out. And again, I'm going to use, use for guidelines what I learned from, uh, from Rabbi Foreman. So in these portions, chapter 12 describes, we're deep into the categories of Tuma and Tahara. Tuma means impure, and Tahor means pure. But we think of pure and impure as kind of moral categories. Good and bad. Good and bad, that's right. But that's not what they mean here. They mean ritually fit or ritually unfit. In other words, uh, what happens in the precinct of God has to be of a certain quality of um, preparation. Oh, that's what we were talking about last time. Whereas the rest of life is the rest of life. If you think about the, the distinction the Torah makes between holy time and profane time. Right? Profane time, even profane has come to mean uh, a vulgar, or uh, that would be the right comparison. Uh, but profane in this sense of chol in the Jewish, in, in the way that Judaism lays it out, is just not holy time. We live in profane time six days a week. You know, if that was bad all the time, we'd be in trouble. It's just where you live. And then you prepare yourself as one would get ready for Shabbat or get ready for Passover to enter holy time. So Tameh is the condition of not being prepared to enter the holy precinct, but then through a series of preparations, you can make yourself ready for holy space or holy time. <coughs> and, and that's really the categories that we're discussing here. So it's interesting then to study what makes you ritually unfit uh, um, and what make, and, and the first category that they talk about is childbirth. So what chapter 12 is, when is a very short chapter, it's just these eight verses, that if a woman gives birth, uh, they are considered to be in a state of tum'ah um, and have to go through a reintegration ritual in order to re-enter the holy space. And um, it appears, as we've talked about in past years, that one of the main things, the, the main things that can put you into a state of being ritually unready of Tum'ah is contact with blood, contact with death, and um, uh, your own uh, immoral behavior. Right? All, all, all three of those um, somehow cut you off or disconnect, disconnect, that's a good word, disconnect you from being part of the, the sacred community. So one of the things we're going to have to think about is, not in our context, but the best we can approximate in the context of the Torah, death, contact with death. Death isn't bad. People die. Birth, 
blood, uh, and then by extension, the behavior that makes you holy, um, the moral behavior, which is essentially the message, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't, it says in, it says in, the, in two portions from now, you shall be holy, for I, yod heh am holy, and that name of that portion is Kedoshim. Actually, it'll be next week, because it's a double portion. The name of that portion is Kedoshim, and it has as its climax, this is what you need to do to be holy, love your neighbor as yourself. So clearly for the Torah, it's a category of holiness that the holy community can only exist if uh, we're loving each other and considering each other properly. Um, so one of the words I've used over the years is uh, the integrity of the community depends on how we treat one another. And if we don't treat one another with that integrity of the commandments, then we find that there's a rupture in the holiness of the community that needs to be repaired. Just like the rupture of blood is the vessel of the body being ruptured and what's inside, the holy stuff of life pouring out, there needs to be a repair, right? And uh, I think the same will hold true for when you come in contact with death, that death is a rupture in the, the community and there needs to be a ritual of repair there too. That's how I've come to understand it. So, and by the way, please chime in any time. Gail? Just, I always love the, the one shortly after you shall love your neighbors yourself is the strangers who reside with you shall be to you as your citizens. You shall love each one as yourself. Yes, it also says in that chapter that not only love your neighbors yourself, and we'll look at this next week, but you have to love the stranger I mean, just, as yourself. Right. right. It's, it's, we're talking about... Moral requirement here is... The moral requirement for being close to God is not only to love the your neighbors yourself, but to love the stranger as you would want to be treated. Uh, yes? So the, kind of the three categories, blood, death, and immorality. And then, but sometimes it seems like, and I keep trying to like kind of get around it, but sometimes it seems like the fourth category is like contact with women. So yes. for instance, right, you're twice as long if you have a baby girl as opposed to a baby boy, right? So how do you... Thoughts? Anybody? Because did you notice that? You have to... Uh, you, you, your, your purification period is 33 days for a male child and twice that for a female child. This, um, this is the women's... Um, it's, the same, you know, it's the same translation but different commentary. In their commentary, they speak about how circumcision is then another category that is... I mean, it's odd because if circumcision is actually a cutting, right. and mm -hmm. a, but it's still considered... That, it, that it's creating wholeness. Yes, it, isn't that ironic? Yeah. Circumcision somehow so completes the male. That's part of their explanation, is that the circumcision... Hi! Um, oh, come on in, grab a book. This moil comes in with a knife. Oh, no, no, this No, but how does it... It shows the defilement. Um, what does it say? Here, find, find, here, yes, make yourself comfortable anywhere. So the removal of the foreskin is viewed as a sort of purification ritual so that both mother and son can achieve purity uh, sooner. 
So that the circumcision of the male, uh, well, clear, we're, we're going to get we'll, talking about the circumcision as a ritual of blood um, that somehow uh, makes the male a part of the covenantal community does seem like a, a, um, a paradoxical uh, or contradictory. And yet we'll find many rules like that in the Torah that uh, where, where it, can, it goes in either direction. Right. I'm, I get perpetually tongue-tied about this. I do. <laughs> I do. It's like sometimes I feel like I understand it and then I don't again. Yes? Yeah. It's where I am at the moment with it. Please. Which is that the um, it's longer for the woman to be repurified after giving birth to a girl because girls, by definition, are themselves going to give birth down the road. They are closer to death. And closer to blood. And closer to blood than men are, also because they menstruate. So they're closer. So it's that connection that makes it longer. And, and my sense with the circumcision is that this is one where it's, it's a unification with God. Mm-hmm. So it's taking on the life force of God in some way by spilling blood. It's, Beautifully it's put. something involving, it's, it feels something like that. Too. Good, that helps me actually. I can say, I can, I can uh, build on that. The one thing I want to say, Emily, is that my experience of the Torah is that they, women are not lesser than men in the Torah, that there are layers post-biblical, especially in Hellenistic interpretations and on, that then explain why women are, uh, why these special restrictions, why women need them. Mm-hmm. Um, but more likely, it's an explanation about this non-rational system of blood mm-hmm. and the place of blood in the ritual of ancient Israel. Um, that's, I think that's really valid. And then the, um, the other thing to say about circumcision is and we've discussed this before, it's important to remember that the word for foreskin is orla, ayin resh lamet he, which is also the word used of the, for a sheath. When Moses says, I'm slow of speech, it says, I'm arel fatayim. I have an orla, I have a sheath, a sheath over my mouth. And when God commands uh, through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy and says, Cut off the or, or, or la around your heart. Cut off the, and it gets translated in the old translations as cut off the foreskin around your heart. It's like, <laughs> or la must not mean foreskin because there's also, or arel is a plant, a, a fruit tree that, has, that hasn't, isn't ready to bear fruit yet. So it's something that hasn't, that covers up potential energy of some kind. So the circumcision represents unsheathing uh, the generative organ for the male, but it's a ritual of blood, clearly. So it's not just about circumcision. It's a completely symbolic gesture, that, and blood is part of it. Yeah. And it's, it's unsheathing it in communion with the divine. Right. So that the whole act of procreation will be holy. I think you're right. Um, one of the challenging conversations I have with, with prospective parents who come to me. We don't want to circumcise. We don't want to, we don't want to cut off the tip of our baby's penis, right? And I say, well, if you don't want... I say, unless you understand this as a covenanting ceremony, 
there is no reason for you to circumcise. And you'll forgive me, but the health reason explanation doesn't, doesn't make it for me. Um, like, plenty of people with foreskins have perfectly healthy... <laughs> right? It, doesn't, it just doesn't make it for me. So it's not... wasn't a public health movement. Um, that's a modern concept, public health. So I say to them, no, there's no reason for you to do this unless you understand it as that you are symbolically marking your skin's flesh to put them in sacred relationship with the Creator. And then it's your job as parents to raise your boy to understand the meaning of that symbol. Right? So, uh, again, we, we only hear circumcision because we've forgotten the importance of it as, an, a, as a, a covenant ceremony where you become essentially a blood brother in this sacred community. It's a, it, it, so there are other, plenty of other cultures that have, that have blood as part of sacred rituals that bond you. Yeah, yeah you see that like on some of these specials on TV, these other cultures doing all kinds of things maybe around childbirth. The mother has to stay in this little tent and all sorts of... That's so it's so sort of like they're, like they're drawing on... on some for something that is uh, a natural kind of uh, response, not a superstition exactly, but a responding responding to, to what to um, this crazy life thing force right. that we have. Yeah, like mm -hmm. an unknown, this unknown thing about birth and all that. Right. So maybe they're a little more modern <laughs> here than than the cultures that maybe. came before them. But I think it's the same kind of. Um, some kind of rituals, you know, dance, mm -hmm. and the boys get indoctrinated. They have well, to go up into the again. I believe in I believe in the power of rituals. Yeah. Our our boys don't, uh, and now girls don't go have to kill an animal to prove they're ready for manhood or adulthood. They have to get up and read from the Torah, and that's our rite of passage. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm in favor <laughs> of rituals, and I'm always fascinated by them, or I wouldn't have become a rabbi. But. Um, uh, what I did want to say about that is, um, oh, so remember now it's an old book, The Red Tent by Anita Diamant. If anyone read it, she tries to tell the story. She does a successful job and a very imaginative telling of all of this from the women character's perspective. And being in the tent, the menstrual tent, was actually a break, a sacred break from life where you were just with the women and you were just tending to your newborn. And you didn't have to do all the other labors that are involved in an ancient society of, of farming and uh, agriculture and, and, and herding. Uh, and so the, rather than think of the 33 days or the 66 days plus the two weeks or one week as a punishment, she completely recast it in a very convincing way as a time of female solidarity. And in a culture that was so, so, and still is in the Middle East, so defined by separate gender roles, uh, which, is the, where the, which is the province of the masculine and of the feminine, this was a place for the feminine to be safe and cared for and celebrated. And that's a whole other way of looking at it. So it makes me want to read the book again, actually. Yes. Is there anything with the numbers 33 and 66? Well, uh, not with the numbers 33 and 66, but with the numbers of 33 plus 7. Doesn't it say 7? On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, and she shall remain in a state of blood purification for 33 days from that eighth day. That is up to 40. 
The eighth day is the first day of the 33 days. So the significant number here is that for 40 days, which again is a biblical number we don't quite understand, but is everywhere. 40 years, 40 days and 40 nights, it's everywhere. And then for a female, that 40 is doubled. So whatever 40 signifies, it's certainly the number of the journey, right? The year 40 years in the wilderness, the number of um, days that Moses is on the mountain. So there's something very profound about the number 40 to the biblical mind. Uh, so it's not the 33 and 66 as much as the 40 and the 80. So all of this is part of a symbolic universe. It's not about public health. It's not about keeping the women um, uh, sequestered. So they, you know, it's not about, you know, the impurity, the impurity of childbirth. It's some, uh, it's some, that's why we have to find better words. It's, it's a whole symbol system Paid of maternity leave. paid maternity leave. <laughs> it's about the journey of childbirth. Right? That's what it's about. It's not about, oh, why do the women have to be? It, it, it doesn't seem to be about that to me. That's us looking at it through our lens. Mm-hmm. Um, Gail? Yeah, I don't know where this fits, but I also keep thinking that giving birth then was extremely dangerous. Danger. Mm-hmm. Blood extremely is danger. A lot of women died. Right. So I don't know what the period of, of rest or, or... I don't know what that means mm-hmm. for that culture, but it also feels like we don't... We don't register how Oh, you're right. I'm so glad you're mentioning that. That's right. I mean, what is the risk of childbirth? It's like, it's a liminal area, a place where life and death are on the margin. Is life going to come? Or is it, and yes, so birth time was a time of great danger and contact with death and blood. Thank you. It's so hard for me to like keep remembering you know, because we live in a, such a blessed time in that regard, uh, where it's not as dangerous by incredible multitudes of percentage points than it used to be. Thank you. Right. This is so much the opposite of these stories you heard of the women who had to give birth in the field right. while they were working, right. and then go on working. You That's know. right. This was like really making a big deal out of the birth. This would Not be... Not like just, you know... You that's to... right, because this is a free people. Right. Uh, when you, I'm just thinking about how much birth in, in Egypt, in, in the stories of the, the initial stories of Exodus, that makes me think about the story of the midwives as the first story that gets told in the story of the Exodus and how it's clear that the women, the Hebrew women weren't going to go into any tent for, um, they had labors to, they had their, they had their forced labor to do, and the, the midwives are instructed to, to when the woman is on the birthing uh, stool, uh, to, uh, to see if it's a male, and if so, kill it. And, and what we do with the circumcision is a, oh, this is all about, circumcision is also a kind of, uh, um, I don't know, preventative offering in another way to the deity, to God, to let this child live. Because when um, Moses and Zipporah are returning from uh, Midian on, with Moses' mission to speak to Pharaoh, there's this mysterious three-verse episode where at night it says God came to kill 
Moses and Zipporah grabbed a flint and circumcised either Moses or Moses' son and said, which means, in your blood you shall live. Okay, that's cool. I'm, uh, it, so, but, uh, it's all, so I won't be able to line all this up in an outline, but we're painting a, a picture of, of how, how important this is. And, the, and uh, yeah, that they didn't get to, the, the slaves in Egypt didn't get to do this. Uh, and so it gets ritualized, I think, as a way of both honoring God, connecting with the Creator, sanctifying this, you know, we're not slaves. Yes, I don't think it's a, it even makes the case stronger that in biblical terms, this is not in any way a diminution of the value of women. Um, that comes later. Yeah. Moses had not yet been circumcised? Well, let's look at those verses. Yeah, I, I, it is so unclear. Yeah. Look at Exodus chapter uh, 3. Let me see. I think it's chapter 4. Um, yeah, chapter 4, verse 24. Right, page 356. Well, or were the Israelites practicing circumcision when they were slaves in Egypt? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. But, oh, but guess what? Page 356. This is three verses that will not answer our question. <laughs> and, uh, and at night, when they were in the hotel, I'm just kidding, because the word malon is the modern word for hotel, but it just means a sleeping place in the Bible. They were in the Motel 6. <laughs> At a night encampment on the way, yod he encountered him, Yifkashehu. That's uh, pagash is a strong word, um, and sought to kill him. Who? Why? Why? What verse? And verse 24 on page 356. Oh, okay. Vatikach Tzipporah tzor, and Tzipporah took a flint. Vatichrot et orlat bina, so it's her son, mm-hmm. and cut off the fore, so it does say, okay, mm-hmm. and cut off her son's foreskin. Vataga liraglav, and touched his legs with it. Vatomer. Ki chatan damim atali, for you are truly a bridegroom of blood to me. Who, her son? Mm-hmm. Or to Moses, she said. Had Moses delayed in the circumcision? We don't know. Yeah. There are all, believe me, there are so many commentaries on this, but we're just looking at the text. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Vayaref bimenu, and when he was left alone, but she added, a bridegroom of blood, Lemulot, because I have circumcised. So that's it. So one of the stories here is this is yet another case where a female saves Moses' life, and that's very significant because we've talked about it many times. First it's the midwife, then it's Yocheved and Miriam, and then the daughter of Pharaoh, they all save Moses' life repeatedly, and now, as an adult, 
his life is saved again by a woman in the story. This isn't talked about a lot as those others are. No, because <laughs> the reason I don't talk about it as much is because it's like then we have to read it and then it doesn't make any sense. Okay. So, but in Torah class we can read it together because yeah. here we're here to just well, I dig don't in. Mean you, but just in general. I know, I know, but Zipporah is as important as any of the other women in the story yeah. in this function as the one who preserves life, right? Women in Exodus, as I've taught, they are clearly the life keepers and protectors. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tzipora is in that group. So that's the passage of um, uh, br Bridegroom of Blood. Um, <laughs> it's a name of a, a name of a horror movie. <laughs> yes, and let's go back now to 735, but go ahead. If Moses... Um, if he had been circumcised and they found him as a baby and he might have been identified as a Jewish child, would he still, you know, been raised as he was? Well, what a great question. He was identified as a Jewish child. I mean, he, the, was, oh, he was. He was. Wasn't yeah. sure if he Pharaoh's had daughter been, says, oh, it's a Hebrew this baby. must be a Hebrew baby. And why would she maybe say that unless she saw he was circumcised? Oh, cool. Great, but, that's a that's a plausible. But they also but also the decree was out to put the yeah. right. So she might have been assuming that a baby floating down the Nile in a basket might be a Hebrew. On the other hand, she might have looked at this Hebrew yeah. baby and said, "Oh, it's a Hebrew baby," yeah. and then hid that from that knowledge from Pharaoh and raised him in the palace. In the movie, there was a special cloth. Yes. <laughs> cool. <The> Jewish star. <laughs> <laughs> His name was Moshe. No, I mean, she named him Moshe. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. So, uh, let's turn now to page uh, 736. Because now this gets into this mysterious malady called Sara'at. Um, the Eternal One spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of the body a, ra a swelling, a rash, or a discoloration, and it develops into something called tsara'at. And they tried to translate here as a scaly affection. Uh, you, the, the traditional translation is leprosy. But it's clearly not leprosy. Uh, because it has none of the symptoms of leprosy. It has nothing to do with leprosy other than being a skin. Something with the skin. So that was again King James looking for the right word. The heartbreak of psoriasis. <laughs> right. Uh, so it's, it's called in Hebrew tsara'at. And, uh, or, and, and um, the, it shall be reported to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest. Um, the priest shall examine the affection on the skin of the body. And we're not going to read all this because now we get into an incredibly detailed description of the priest who, remember, is not a doctor, uh, not an MD, right? The priest is the spiritual um, keeper. So this is a, they treat this as a, some kind of spiritual disease because the treatment for it is going to be being separated from the camp and being cut off from the group for a period of time until they are declared ritually fit again to re-enter the people. So, and it's an elaborate description of what constitutes this affliction. 
And one of the keys is that Rabbi um, Foreman ex explained um, is the word used to describe tzara'at. Uh, if you look in verse 2, it says, Adam ki seet And then that word nega gets repeated over and over again. If you look, look in verse 3, When he looks at this affliction, and on the place of the affliction, and the appearance of the affliction, it is the affliction of tzara'at. Or, um, how does our uh, translator have it? Uh, affection. Okay, but anybody know what nega means? Um, there's only one time prior to this, and this is, again, where I got excited. There's only one time prior to this in the Torah where the word nega is used. Let me surprise you. Uh, look on, uh, here, look on page... Um, 408. Uh, uh, Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. Is it a play? 408. 408, chapter 11, verse 1. Vayomer Adonai Moshe, od nega echat avial paro v'amitzrayim. Darkness? No plague. But for the first nine plagues, this word isn't used. So nega, which means plague, lingo is to touch. Nega is what? I don't know. It gets translated as plague. Um, it's, in Hebrew, they're called the asara hamakot, which means mamaka is a strike. Um, in other places in Exodus, God says, I'm going to bring extraordinary shvatim, which means chastisements against them. But we think of it as the ten plagues. It turns out this is the first place in the Torah where the word nega is used to, to signify a plague. So it's the plague, it's the, this nega is the killing of the firstborn. Um, and then the word nega, interestingly enough, is not used again in Torah, I checked, um, <laughs> until this chapter where Tzara'at is identified as a nega, as a plague. So, in what we've learned about Torah over all these years, if, this, if an unusual word is used in two different places, it's intentional. They want us to hear the other, the association. Um, so, then, the, then this interesting question becomes, what's the connection between the 10th plague, the killing of the firstborn, and what happens during that episode? What are the Israelites instructed to do? Stay home. Not just stay home. Take a lamb, sacrifice it, take its blood, take a bunch of hyssop, which is that fragrant herb, paint the blood, on their doorposts and go inside their home. And the angel of death will pass over those homes that have the blood on the doorpost and will enter the homes 
of any, any Egyptian home that does not have the blood. And you're back to bridegroom of blood. You're back to you bridegroom of blood. You're back to uh, blood um, as the symbol of what? Of both death and life. Um, uh, Rabbi Foreman explains that, that it may even be a, a symbol of birth because after that, it says that after that lo- vigil, that long labor at night, he says, it says, and the Israelites in the morning go forth. They come out their doors through this opening of blood and go to freedom. I mean, it's quite interesting. Uh, so, so there's going to be a link because... Let's, you can keep your finger there if you want, or... Oh, this... Yes. I just, I just realized what to read about. Yeah, okay. You may not, I may not be going there. Do you want to say it? That's okay. Okay, because, Karen? Um, that, they talk about that in here, too, in this commentary, and they also refer back to the chapter back in Genesis, when Abraham, he's still Avram, I think, with mm-hmm. Sarai, and they go to Egypt, and Avram doesn't let Pharaoh know that... that Sarah is his wife. His wife. And so then... Um, here again, that God strikes Pharaoh with this effect, affliction. Um, it's chapter 12, Ooh. verse 17. That's on page 92. Nigaim g'dolim. Oh, and it's, this, it's the same idea. Vayinaga Adonai et paro nigaim g'dolim. It's only the word nega, the singular, that gets used so, okay. so it's so the word nega yinga is used elsewhere, but just nega as a plague. But I think that actually weakens Rabbi Foreman's uh, Sorry. Okay. argument. That's okay because the connection <laughs> goes back to here. Um, the Eternal then struck Pharaoh and his household with severe afflictions because of Sarai, wife of Abraham. Uh, cool. Okay. Yes. is being used in the context of what are considered sort of the worst things one can do. Yes, it's the worst thing that can happen to you. Sexual immorality, as with That's right. Or um, murder. Right. Death of the firstborn. Right. And I'm thinking where the rabbis go, which is gossip. That's right. So, sara'at, this condition... Mm-hmm. This condition, tzara'at, is not skin disease. It's completely understood as symbolic of an inner state. And the rabbis associate that inner state with slander. If you speak slanderously of someone and you attack them with words. And also, uh, um, uh, the rabbis associate it with arrogance and haughtiness. So this external appearance, which I've talked about in, in, in before, as I see as being a rupture of integrity, because it's like all these patchy scales appear on your skin, but if, you're, if you appear completely white, you don't have the disease. So it's not about some... This is not a, a, a medical diagnosis. It's a spiritual diagnosis. It's a manifestation of your inner 
uh, ruptured integrity. And the, so, um, so we're going to get to that too. But let, me, let me point something else out. Now go to page 752. Chapter 14. And Yudhevave spoke to Moses, uh-huh. saying, Zot tia Torat Hamitzora. Now our translation says this shall be the ritual for the Mitzora, the one afflicted. On the, well, at the time of being purified. So they've been cut off from the camp. They've been diagnosed, cut off from the camp. And here's what they have to do. And it doesn't just say <coughs> ritual. It says Torah HaMetzorah. The instructions, but it's Torah. It's a big word. This, was, this is very important to the biblical, um, to the Torah. Uh, because of all the associations we're seeing. And yet, for us, again, we have to somehow penetrate it because it's so important, but we don't necessarily understand it in our own terms. So, when it has been reported to the priest, the Kohen, the Kohen shall go out of the camp and the Kohen shall see whether the Mitzorah has been healed. Uh, Then, the, the Kohen shall order two live, ritually pure birds Cedar wood, crimson stuff. Shnitalat means like a crimson thread. Now this must be a, such an ancient custom because uh, do you know about the uh, traditions of say tying a uh, red thread uh, around the crib to ward off evil? And this must be that old. Mm-hmm. That's what I think, and it's still practiced today. Um, of course, the birds are poor. Oh. And Zipporah is Moses' wife. And names are not accidental. I never thought of that. Hmm. Moses' wife named Zipporah, which is such a beautiful name, which is why, you know, someone whose Hebrew name is Zipporah might be called Fagala. Uh, I mean, uh, right? Yeah. Is it? yeah, a little bird. Um, Fagala is bird? Yeah, that's why a Fagala is also someone who, yeah, in Yiddish, is someone who's effeminate. Um, it's also a bow tie. A fagel is a bow tie? <laughs> now you're messing me up. Then. That's my name. Your name's Fagela? Fagela, yeah. Fagela. Fagela is bird and Fagela is little bird, yeah. And it's bow tie. Maybe because a bow tie she, uh, looks like a little bird? Oh, I like that. Okay. Um, okay, so the ritual is two live birds, cedar wood. Now, what do we know about cedar? Smells good. Cedar's red. It smells good. What are cedar's properties? Doesn't doesn't rot. rot. It's fragrant. It's really special wood. Mm -hmm. It it has some real and I mean cedar repels insects. It repels insects. Yeah, cedar's a power. I mean, for people again, these are important things. And hyssop. Hyssop is azov, and um, we've talked about before. But I have. I'm not great with herbs. And I forget what the properties of hyssop are. It's like anise. It's got a beautiful smell, yeah. but I'm sure it has medicinal properties too. Um, remember, these are the medicine men. They're about to perform a <laughs> ceremony to reintegrate the outcast into the tribe. I think it's a purgative. Purgative, that's the word, yes. I think, 
Um, but, but let me just again put that in sort of language, other kind of language. These are the medicine men who are preparing a ceremony with medicinal and powerful substance, natural substances that they know about to reintegrate someone who has been outcast and has to be brought back into the body of the people, right? So think of that word body again. I think it's very important because I think do you, if you were here when we were discussing animal sacrifices a few weeks ago and how the body of the animal is all symbolic map, mapping for... Uh, so everything about, in a non-scientific sort of um, uh, uh, system like this, they are looking for correlations. I said analogy. It's, a not, it's, an, it's, not, it's not a linear way of, of uh, reasoning. It's an analogous way of reasoning. And so the body represents wholeness or disruption, but also the people is a body. And you are a cell in the body who has to be reintegrated because otherwise you will be, as it says, often says in the Torah, if you do this, you will be cut off from the people. Right? And that means that you're not a separate individual. You're both an individual with your own integrity, but you're also not just an individual. You're part of the body the, of the children of Israel. So this is a ceremony to reintegrate the individual into the body of Israel. And the priest shall order one of the birds slaughtered over fresh water in an earthen vessel. <clears throat> Everything here <coughs> excuse me, must be significant even if we don't understand yet what the significance is. So a fresh water in an earthen vessel, and it's called not just fresh water in Hebrew, what's it called in verse 5? Look at the very end of verse 5. Mayim chayim, living water. So there's a death and life going on here. And uh, the bird is slaughtered over the living waters in the earthen vessel. And he shall take the live bird along with the cedar wood, the crimson thread, and the hyssop, and dip them, he makes a bundle, dip them together with the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the fresh water. So they've, they've drained, the, so the blood of the, I picture this, I can be completely wrong, I picture this as the blood of the slain bird going into the water, because that's where you slaughtered it. And it reminds me of the first of the ten plagues. Right, of the water turning to blood. I don't know why, but that's, that's what it makes me think of. And then you dip this bundle along with the live bird into the water and sprinkle it on the one to be purified of the mitzorah, of this um, affliction. And, uh, and then you set, the Kohen then sets the live bird free in the open country. That's an amazing image, especially when we're thinking about the 10th, keep the 10th plague in mind, and how that's the climax of the Passover story and the moment when, afterwards, the next morning, after the night of vigil, the children are set free into the open country. Again, I can't put my finger on this, but I'm hearing all these associations. You thinking something, Emily? Uh, yes. Later, the 
the later ritual says turtle doves. The, um... Here it just says birds. Um, and it says turtle doves elsewhere. I think for the house. No, it, it says turtle doves. What, what page do you want? 754. Oh, 754. Okay. Uh, what verse? 22. And two turtle doves or two pigeons. Stay Torim or Tnei So I guess we can assume that those are the live birds that are being spoken about in uh, this passage. Uh, so uh, Tor is a um, um, pigeon and Bnei Yonah, Yonah is a dove. Um, did it say Bnei Yonah? I wonder why it's B'nai or not. Wow, I haven't even thought about that. Do you have any thoughts about it? Sure. This one is, um, and uh, anyway, I was thinking it was sort of relevant when you look at um, the place that Nessus makes ritual immediately following um, the purification uh, of a woman following ritual of a woman following um, a birth. You know, it, it, it's um, it, we were talking about. Um, how it wasn't necessarily an implication that the woman became unclean during childbirth, but um, that I mean, maybe it was a ritual meant to give her space for escape, maternity leave before. Mm -hmm. Space for healing and nurturing, yeah. yeah. And, and so, um, I, I don't know, I, I, I definitely went to one of those schools, you know, so, but. I mean, if you, if you read it very abstractly, you might think that this uh, passage regarding um, purification for skin ailment could um, indicate cleansing rituals before um, returning to um, the community to, to husband. Thank you. That's very clear. Because um, what we're doing is hearing the associations. That's, I think that's the way to study these passages. Mm -hmm. So hearing about turtle doves and what they speak to us, because in Song of Songs we hear a lot about the sound of the turtle dove is heard once again in the land, and it's love. I mean, even the English word to coo, you know, the way a dove does, is a love, a love term too. So, yeah, I'm right with you. Thank you. And you often see them in pairs. I know, like, oh, right, they, they are. And here you're supposed to bring a pair of birds. So I think that, in other words, I, I'm glad you tracked that association, Emily, because uh, I think it's, it's right on. Because the turtle doves will be part of the burnt offering. So once they do this water blood offering, which is a little like the um, Yom Kippur. Right. It's like the two the goats. goats on Yom Kippur, where one is offered to God and the blood is, atones for the people, and the other is sent out into the open land. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that symbol system, you see it. And again, that's what I've come to about trying to read this part of Torah. 
If we try to understand it in our terms, we'll fail. But if we start if, if in our rationalistic terms, but if we allow ourselves to do this analogizing, we start to get a picture, which may be the best we can do, uh, uh, an experience, it, it, some kind of felt experience rather than a linear explanation of take two aspirin and call me in the morning and if not, we'll get you the antibiotics. And it's like, that's a different system, <laughs> which I'm appreciative of, <laughs> um, but not useful in trying to understand what they're after here, uh, which is a different kind of wholeness, I would say. They're after a different kind of wholeness than just physical uh, health. Um, so the church wants to be a burnt offering later. So after this ritual, then there's a burnt offering we'll talk about, and that's where the turtle doves oh. come in. Yeah. Thank you. I'm just reading it. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, let's keep reading about this ritual, because um, then listen to what happens. So the live bird is free in the open country. What a ritual, because then the one to be purified shall wash those clothes, shave off all hair, and bathe in water, and then shall be ritually pure. That's verse 8. Uh, after that, the camp may be entered, but one must remain outside one's tent for seven days. So now it's another stage of re-entry. And now go back to the childbirth uh, of a male. On the seventh day, all hair shall be shaved off again, head, beard, if any, and eyebrows. Having shaved off all hair, the person shall wash those clothes and bathe the water in body and then shall be pure. And on the eighth day, that person shall take two male lambs. Oh, we're dealing with lambs again. Okay, just like in the Passover story. Without blemish, one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish. Three-tenths of a measure of choice flour with oil mixed in for the meal offering. Meal is such a mealy word for the... For the it's a grain. Yeah, the grain offering, but it's mixed together with oil. I think it's a pancake. For the crepes offering. <laughs> um, and Waffles. Huh? The waffle offering. Something tasty. That's what, And a log of oil. And oil is precious. Uh, it's olive oil. And these shall be presented before yod heh with the person to be purified at the entrance of the tent of meeting by the priest who performs the purification. And it goes on, but I don't want to go on just yet. Uh, the tent of meeting, such a powerful term, that is. This is, again, a whole ritual of reintegration from rupture to being sent outside the camp, what that represents, to... And think about the women being isolated in the tent. Maybe being outside the camp is a reflection period. Maybe it's a healing period. Maybe it's, maybe it's not a punitive timeout, the way we'd initially think of it. I can't believe they're kicking that person. Maybe that has nothing to do with it, because that's a different category. But a time to, re, to heal, to... Yeah, what are you thinking? We're not specifically told that the person... Uh, spoke ill of someone. 
No, we're going to get to that in just a moment. Oh, we're going to get to that in just a moment. That's only one possible interpretation. Uh, again, the physical appearance represents some kind of rupture. Um, but we'll turn to chap- We'll turn to the chapter that associates it with uh, with uh, ill speech in a moment. Um, they've had this time to re- say reintegrate themselves. And then there's a ritual of reintegrating into the people, which involves coming in and then seven more days of liminal status, being outside their tent, and then a ritual of shaving everything and bathing. Well, it makes me think of a newborn. Um, That's what it makes me think of. Um, And then being brought, bringing your offerings before the tent of meeting with the priest who diagnosed you initially for this powerful ritual of being able to be part of the community fully again. Um, it, makes me, it does make me think about what we might do if we had the ritual for it, for people who have been, for in, other, in whatever way, ruptured, outcast, uh, cut off, and how and what we might do in our society if there was a way to do it. I don't think we have any particular form that... You appear on a late night show and confess. Right, we have public... (laughs) That's right, we have public apologies. That's about what we have. But the public apologies get to be so pro forma that they're laughable. Of course. Right? Um, So it's lost its substance. uh, but yes, it would be a kind of confession, wouldn't it? I guess where I'm a little lost here mm-hmm. is the person that is affected, if that person were to say, what is the reason for this? Why is this happening to me? We don't seem to have that explained. We don't have that explained. Okay. That's why we have to infer uh, from, from other places. Yes, Kim? I, I just noticed something. So yeah. I'm asking you this, because I, I flipped by accident to the Haftorah. Oh, the Haftorah <laughs> of... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It has, there were four men, all lepers. Mitzorahim. Yeah, not lepers, but four men with this affliction. It's so close to Mitzrayim. You just Oh, that's right. Mitzorah, Mem, Tzadi, Resh, Ayin, and Mitzrayim, which means Egypt. Mem, Tzadi, Resh, Yud, Mem. Thank you for noticing that. Wow, that's so interesting. I think that's intentional. I think so too. The fact that the word nega is used exclusively, a plague yeah. for the, the last of the, the killing of the firstborn and this condition. So everything that Mitzrayim represents is maybe contained in this too. And what does Mitzrayim mean in the Torah? Well, one thing that we know is, and I, if I can remember the citation, I'll turn to the page. Um, uh, in one place in Torah, in Deuteronomy, the, the, Moses, God commands the children of Israel, uh, uh, who says about Mitzrayim, do not go that way again. Don't go there. And it's when they're, and, but there's another thing I'm thinking of. Come on, brain. Um, oh, yeah. Um, that it says in Deuteronomy that I will afflict you with 
the uh, ailments of Mitzrayim, with the illness of Mitzrayim, but God will heal you of the ailments of Mitzrayim. So Mitzrayim and Mitzorah are definitely connected. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. What is Mitzrayim for the Jews in the Torah? Slavery. Slavery. Disconnection from, disconnection from God and disconnection from the body of Israel. Right? Uh, so I think there's a real connection there. So where do the rabbis come up with what Bruce was saying? Why is Mitzorah associated with slander? Uh, now you have to turn to Numbers chapter 12 on page 965. Because this is the next time we hear about Mitzorah. So listen, just so, so chapter, the first chapter, it's chapter 12 is the chapter in Leviticus, and chapter 12 is the chapter in All right. Uh, that's on page 965. <clears throat> um, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses um, uh, because of the Cushite woman he had married, saying he has married a Cushite woman. All right, this is another out of the blue thing that we're, uh, maybe we'll have some insights today. <laughs> they said, has yod heh spoken only through Moses? Has God not spoken through us as well? <laughs> so this is a precursor to Korach, yeah. saying, wow, Moses, you know, why do you take it all? Doesn't God think we're all holy? And God heard it. Now Moses was a very humble man more so than any other human being on earth. And suddenly, yod heh vav called to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, saying, Is this when they get killed? No. Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. So the three of them went out. Also, it's important to note, we haven't heard from Miriam in a very long time mm -hmm. when we get to this point. I don't know if Miriam has made an appearance since uh, crossing the Red Sea. Um, maybe not. Uh, so, um, the Eternal came down in a pillar of cloud, stopped at the entrance of the tent, and called out, Aaron and Miriam. This is very dramatic. <laughs> and the two of them came forth, and God said, Hear these my words. When prophets of yod heh arise among you, I will make myself known to them in a vision, or I speak with them in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is trusted throughout my household, and with him I speak mouth to mouth plainly and not in riddles, and he beholds the likeness of the eternal. How then did you not shrink from speaking against my servant Moses and incensed yod heh -Vav -Heh departed? He's pissed. That's right. Nine, turn the page. I hope you like good stories, because if you don't worry too much about what they mean first, they're just really good stories. Uh, Verse 10, well, as the cloud withdrew from the tent, Hine Miriam mitzoraat kasheleg. Behold, here is Miriam covered with mitzorah, the condition, like snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam. He saw that she was mitzoraat, uh, stricken with scales. You know, 
we, we can't go there. We have to start, stick with Mitzorah. Mm-hmm. And Aaron said to Moses, please be Adoni. Please don't tashet aleinu chatat. Don't account for us this sin that we have committed, uh, that we have sinned in our folly. Al natihi kamet. Let her not be as a dead one. Asher tome rechem, who comes out stillborn from the womb of his mother, with half his flesh eaten away. Whoa! Vayitzak Moshe el Adonai lemor. And so Moses cried out to Yerevavi, saying, God, Elna, Rafanala, please, God, please heal her. But God said to Moses, maybe it's and, and Yerevavi said to Moses, if her father spat in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Therefore, let her be shut out of camp for seven days, and then let her be readmitted. So Miriam was shut out of camp for seven days, and the people did not march on until Miriam was readmitted. Ad he asef Miriam, until Miriam was gathered in. After that, the people set out from Chatzerot and encamped in the wilderness of Parah. So with that marvelous story, we hear again about this condition called Mitzorah. And so the rabbis, linking words and words, just like we're linking the word for plague and plague, link the word Mitzorah here and Mitzorah there, because it hasn't come up since then. It says, what did Miriam do? Uh, well, she spoke ill about, she slandered Moses. Now, why it didn't happen to Aaron? Again, the, the first knee-jerk reaction of all this is, why is it happening to the woman? Right? But again, the Torah doesn't seem to operate that way. The Torah doesn't punish women and not men. Right? That's, that's, that's a different paradigm, a later one that connects women with um, uh, sinfulness and uh, um, sexual um, um, seduction. Right? That's not in the Torah. Shota. Um, yeah, and if they do this ritual, if it's the husband who is the jealous husband. Well, when you read that whole chapter, as we have in the past, uh, it's difficult. It's difficult, but it also appears that it's a ritual to uh, allow the husband to save face. And uh, the family to continue. And the family to continue, right. But it's burdensome on the woman. It's burdensome on the woman. I'm not saying that the Torah is feminist. I'm saying that it doesn't uh, blame women for men's sins. Oh, that's true, sir. Um, uh, the way the the Hellenistic interpretation starts to say that, that starts to treat it. But when you read, as we've said, when you read the story straight up in the Torah, um, uh, um, Jezebel's not a seductress, uh, Delilah's not a seductress, Eve is not a seductress. That's a later layering on. Uh, okay. Um, so, uh, yes, Kiel? I've been reading Jonathan Slater's book on Leviticus. Yes. Oh, right, I forgot about that. God gives Moses a sign. Uh, Go to Pharaoh, put your hand inside your cloak, take it out, and it will be, what word is used? 
Um, no. That's what you're referring to? Um, well, what happens in yeah, the, uh, at the burning bush? What, 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 at the what happens? He it shows it to Pharaoh too, right? He's given um, a rod into a snake, right? When he goes to Pharaoh to show the snake. Oh, yeah. Verse 6. Uh, I, didn't, I forgot about this. It's Thank verse you. Verse 6. And what Slater says. We're in chapter 4, verse 6. If you want to find it, it's on page 354. So wait a second, let people get, get their eyes on that and then read it to us. 354. Verse 6. Snowy. Yudhe Vavhe said to him further, put your hand into your tricho, your bosom. Vayotziah, and when he took it out, Yado Mitzorat Kashalak was uh, um, had this Mitzorah condition like snow, just like it says about Miriam. And, and what Slater says is that some, some of the commentators feel this was not so much a sign as a punishment or a, a statement because Moses has said, The Israelites will not believe me about you. Mm-hmm. And that it is a defamatory statement about the Israelites. And so this is what happens. Wow. And I, I thought it was an interesting argument. Interesting. Very interesting. It, it, at least it, it fitted, at least. Thank, the same you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. But it's also, that's the only other time we hear this phrase, and his hand was uh, uh, covered with Mitsora like snow, and now Miriam has it like snow. Um, okay. Is there anything about this, the place where this happens? Hats? Chatserot. Well, a chatser is like a an enclosure for cattle. What do you call that? Uh, a pen. You know, it's outdoors. <laughs> okay. It's outdoors. A chatser is a yard, or a courtyard, or an enclosure. So I always thought chatserot was like a sheepfold. That was the word I was thinking of. Um, but then I haven't thought about it more than that. It still has that root, hmm. that Saudi rish. It has tzadi ration, but it also has uh, chutz, which means outside. And they have to be taken outside of the camp. So I would say chatzer and being michutz outside might have something to do with it too. I'm not sure. So the other phrase that Rabbi Foreman points out is that in, that in Miriam's um, uh, condition, she has to be shut out from the camp outside the camp for seven days, and achar te'asef. Te'asef, it says readmitted, but te'asef means to be gathered in. And, uh, and so, Miriam was shut out of camp for seven days, and the people waited. They're not, they're not going anywhere. And then she's he'asef, ve'ha'am lo nasab ad he'asef Miriam, and the people did not march on until Miriam was gathered in. And the point there is that the phrase gathered into your people is actually used when uh, Abraham dies and when Jacob dies. And Abraham died and was Heaseth el Amo, was gathered into his people. So that's just another fascinating connection between this condition of Tzora'at, Mitzorah, death, being gathered in, to your people, you know, I, 
I just hear it all. And uh, uh, so, yes, Bruce. <laughs> I'm exploding. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I don't have enough time today, but I recommend that you look at, uh, I, I may gave you this website before, you can, I'll show you it later, um, that you look at his videos and see how we did compared to his teachings on these Parshas. Um, yes, Bruce. The people didn't move unless the cloud moved. And so the deity didn't want them to leave Miriam no. behind. Right. So it wasn't a, a, a choice of the tribe. It was, you'll, True. Stay, you'll stay until she's back. That's right. Um, so uh, uh, Mary Douglas, who is an anthropologist that we've studied, who wrote a fascinating book about Leviticus and about numbers, uh, thinks that Miriam, in her occasional appearances in the Torah, because she's not a through character, uh, uh, in this case, represents Israel. Israel is often represented in the Torah as a female, as God's consort, as, and that Miriam's presence here as, as Moses' sister, Mary Douglas thinks, is representing the bride, Israel. That's, that's her thesis. And that Miriam being shut out for slander and then readmitted is also about the errant, because if you read like the prophet Hosea, I took you, at, you, know, I took you in your youth in the wilderness, and uh, brought you under my wings. And so there's all that language of, of both parent and lover. So that's, that's Mary Douglas's theory. But since we're running out of time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize, and then you'll chime in if you have something to add. Because I know we've been all over the place here. Um, so the rabbis make a clear, absolutely unequivocal connection between Mitzorah and the act of slandering arrogance. In other words, I was thinking of this, the child at the Seder who says, uh, the wicked child. The definition of wickedness to the rabbis was to cut yourself off from the community. Right? The wicked child says in the Seder, what does this ritual mean to you? And the rabbi said, to you and not to me. Right? So, for them, the definition of wickedness is to, dis is to distance yourself, to cut yourself off from the body of the community. That's so wrong in the biblical and rabbinic and Jewish mindset. Uh, um, it can be burdensome <laughs> when it's told you by some, some parent or grandparent, but uh, it, it's consistent, at least, with the idea of being part of the community that if you rupture that relationship, um, you are both Mitzorah and Mitzrayim, you're cutting yourself off, you're removing yourself from the body that's traveling with the cloud of the divine through those 40 years in the wilderness, you're, however you want to describe it. Uh, so Mitzorah seems to be a condition of having to be cut off from the community of losing your integrity, and it manifests as a loss of your physical integrity. Like, and, and so you're ruptured, you're leaking. So much else in these two Parshas, Tazri and Mitzorah, is about seminal emissions, blood, um, any kind of leaking from the integrity of your body was viewed symbolically 
as a need to be reintegrated into the condition of a holy community under the divine presence. It's not necessarily sinful behavior, but it's behavior that cuts you off. And the consequence of that is you're cut off. And that's horrible. Because you're not a, you're not, you can't really exist apart from the body of the collective, of the whole. And, and so, um, this, so all of these substances that leak from the body, but especially blood, which belongs to God, if blood leaks from you inordinately, um, you're, uh, you're in the realm of, of death. You're in the danger zone. And you need to be, and blood belongs to God. So you need to be reintegrated and then bring the blood back to God. So a ritual, kind of a homeopathic ritual of, of bringing you all back together again in the holy, holy precinct where the blood belongs. So, um, so if there's a moral to this story, it's about being cut off, having your integrity ruptured, the integrity of the self, through, uh, through, especially through immoral behavior, the integrity of the collective through uh, these ruptures, that's the word I like to use, these ruptures in the integrity of the community, and what you need to do in order to be reintegrated, uh, and that we don't want to leave without you. Right? It's not about being excommunicated. This isn't, that's not what's going on here. It's about having a spiritual condition that has somehow made, it, made you um, disconnect or create a breach in the life of the community. And so there has to be a way to mend that breach, for you to mend yourself, uh, have a timeout, a holy timeout, in the tent for 40 or 80 days. You know, it's not necessarily a moral failing so that you can then reintegrate yourself and then reintegrate into the community. Uh, and the community, just like with Miriam, doesn't leave you behind. And then you're born anew into this body and you get to start over until the next time that this happens. That's what I was taking away from what I was learning today. Anyone have any other thoughts they want to share? Do you mean the, the intimate do, the intimate thou and the formal you? Because is that part of what you're referring to? Yeah. Because um, he named his title, his book, Ich und Du, which means I and thou, but thou in, the old, in its old meaning as the intimate, like in French when you say tu, it's an intimate address, and when you say vous, it's a formal address. So he, he titled his book as an intimate address between... I and you. And uh, do you want to say more about that, Emily? Um, he feels contrarily that it's uh, um, speaking with the second person and addressing someone in the second person is really um, more 
to a nuanced way of um, communicating because I was reading Walter Kaufman's commentary and um, use the term community, you know, saying that it's an in more infantile way of, of communicating. It really implies that we, you know, we all feel this certain way. Really, there's a lot of difference. Ah, uh, yes. When you, so, when, go ahead. Oh. Well, I was going to say, so, one of one of ways Buber's uh, theology has been described is as the dialogical, that you enter into a dialogue with the other, um, in an intimate way, whether it's another person or God or the tree, and they have their own self as opposed to it all being an extension of you. Uh, that's what I heard you saying, Emily. Is that on track? Um. Or not? <laughs> yeah. Child, yes. Being considered wicked because he sees as the second person or wonder if, if that's really um, an opinion that's shared by. Oh, that's ubiquitous. In the Jewish, in the rabbinic tradition, which we are the inheritors of, Hillel, the great spokesperson of core principles of the rabbinic tradition, says. Al tifrosh min hatzipur, min, min hatzipur, min hatzibur. Do not separate yourself from the community. So this becomes one of the key directives of the rabbinic understanding of Judaism that becomes so deeply embedded in Jewish culture, right? That the, the worst thing you can do as a Jew is cut yourself off from the Jewish community. And many Jews have been bitterly chastised for doing this. It's a cultural trait. But putting it in its most positive light. So, so the answer is, there's no way around the importance of community if you're going to take Judaism seriously. Right? Judaism is happening in community. It's where the action is. And that's the way it is. It's not a monastic tradition, and it's not just about you and God. It's about you and God as God appears in the faces of the people you are engaged with. And that's the way it is with Judaism. It's not a hermetic path. And um, that doesn't mean other cultures don't have fabulous other ways of getting close to God. But Judaism, it's community. And it starts here and it carries right through. So when the wicked child says, what does this mean to you? That's like the worst thing they can say because they have removed themselves from the body of Israel and they have ruptured it. And uh, so for better and for worse, this is an inherent quality of Jewish culture. Certainly for better, given how many people come to me and say, you know one of the things I love about non-Jews come to me and say, you know one of the things I'm jealous of and I love about Jews and Judaism is the way your families sort of the way you're so family-oriented in the way, and you know, the Jews are thinking, oh, you don't want my family. <laughs> you know, and, but from the outside, it looks really good when you don't have it. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Yeah. And then, and just like every, just like every directive, when taken to its extreme, it shows its dark side, right? Uh, but 
Um, so the U here is negative um, because it's a U, it's a saying you that is separating you from the community and you're not saying we. Um, that's how I understand that rabbinic directive. Uh, and of course, in rabbinic, oh, I've gone over. Okay, so in, in the other example that the rabbis um, make a big deal out of in the Talmud is Elisha ben Avuya, who was a great rabbi who became an apostate and abandoned the Jewish community. And the stories they tell about him, they don't make him into an evil person, they make it into a tragedy. The stories about Elisha Avuya, who they then call the other, that becomes his name, are not punishments of him or even vilifications of him. We should study those stories. They, are, they describe a tragedy of someone who's lost his community. Isn't that interesting? I just thought of that. We have to look at those stories sometime. What? Anyway, I hope this has been uh, uh, illum illuminating, stimulating. <laughs> uh, and we'll meet again next week. I'm so glad you all could come. Here's the basket for your donations if you want to. This class doesn't require it, but if you want to make a donation, it's wonderful. Thank you.